it's an opportunity because dance on film is definitely a thing. Oh, yeah. But dance uh, created for live performance can't automatically assume that it's going to be good on film. Right. (laughs) So you have to just kind of like appreciate that that's a whole other medium. If that's what you're going to do right now, put dance on a digital live stream or create a film, then surround yourself with people who actually do that. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Talk About the Industry. Thanks for being with us. Today, our guest is the illustrious Lauren Warnecke. Lauren Warnecke is a Midwest-based freelance dance writer and culture critic. She is currently a senior writer and editor at Sea Chicago Dance and contributes to the Chicago Tribune, Chicago Magazine, Milwaukee Magazine, St. Louis Magazine, Dance Magazine, and Point, among others. Previously, she contributed to the Windy City Times, Dance Advantage, and Four Dancers. Pending publications include writings for Agenda and the University of Akron Press. From 2017 to 2018, Warnecke completed a low-residency dance writing lab at the National Center for Choreography in Akron, Ohio. In 2017, she facilitated a critical writing intensive for the Jumba Contemporary Dance Experience in Durban, South Africa. In 2018-2019, she was a writer-in-residence for the Bates Dance Festival. Holding degrees in dance and kinesiology, Warnecke is an adjunct instructor of dance and exercise science currently at Loyola University Chicago and Illinois Wesleyan University. She is interested in the intersection of sports performance models applied to dance, aesthetic competence, and cultural criticism. She has presented this work at the International Association for Dance Medicine and Science, the National Dance Education Organization, and the Midwest Sport and Exercise Psychology Symposium. Welcome, Lauren. Thanks, Matt. How you doing? It's always weird to hear your bio read out. It seems like it's entirely too long when someone reads it to you. (laughs) But I appreciate the introduction. No, it's fine. I it's a long bio because it's a really impressive bio. Um, I I'm so excited to have you on this podcast. Uh, we know each other ultimately because your lovely wife Julie Ballard and I have worked together for a number of years. Um, but also, I you are one of I think a really rare breed of arts critics that are able to describe the work intelligently while also being truly critical of it. You know, you you use such great critical thinking to assess the piece uh, and its relation to the company's history and its relation to dance as a whole and its relation to what the audience member might expect. And, you know, it shouldn't be rare for critics to be able to do that. But uh, but I think it is. And uh, I'm just always impressed by your writing. Well, thanks, Matt. I think uh, I think that's really generous. I stand on the shoulders of giants, so <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I'm just really excited to to sort of talk about how I got there, and you know, maybe some of the things I think about when I write about dance. Well, let's let's dive right in and start uh, with your background. You are sounds like a kid, uh, an orchestra dance geek, right? <laughs> yeah, band nerd too. You can add that into the fold nice. for sure. Yeah. Nice, excellent. And, and I use the term geek and nerd with all the love in my heart as right. also a band nerd myself uh, and the child of two musicians. 
<laughs> so you, uh, I think like many of us, you became interested in, in music and dance and the arts as a child. And then you actually, uh, your undergraduate degree was in dance performance at Columbia, right? Yeah, I did. Um, so I played music all growing up through high school and yeah. was actually very interested in maybe becoming a music major or doing mm. music education. I played French horn. I loved it. Band and orchestra was a huge part of my identity as a kid. Yeah. And I also did ballet growing up and sort of had this really intellectual discussion with my 18 year old self about <laughs> how, you know, my my body and my physicality had an expiration date that yeah. music maybe didn't. So I opted to go to college for dance and I started first at actually a really small liberal arts school in mm -hmm. Lake Forest, Illinois called Barra College. Barra, um, okay. And that was a pretty special place for me. Yeah. And it's now this grassy knoll in the middle of Lake Forest. The entire college has closed and been demolished. Oh, no. So, <laughs> <laughs> oh. And they were in the pro it was a conservatory program. Okay. So it was like buns you know, hair, hair in a bun, black leotard, pink tights. Wow. And, and the modern pedagogy was like the technique of Martha Graham. So wow. super um, kind of old school yeah. conservatory program. It's like one step away from having a, an ashtray on top of the piano while you're taking class. <laughs> uh, not even one step. <laughs> um, they, they closed the dance program there while I was still a student in that program. So I did oh, okay. um, up to my first semester of my junior year at Barra and had every intention of finishing there. They closed the program. Yeah. And ultimately, I transferred to... Columbia College, because as it turns out, mm -hmm. like it's not that easy to get into a dance program when you're, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, seventh semester junior. So I had auditioned around a couple of places and mm -hmm. ultimately landed at Columbia. And it was a super fortunate thing for me. And I did three and a half semesters, so three semesters in a summer at Columbia. Mm. And it was the polar opposite experience, right? It was, yeah. I, I sort of put it that I, you know, at Barra, I learned how to be a dancer. Yeah. And at Columbia, I learned how to be an artist. And wow. those two things really mesh super great, I think, in how I approach the field. Yeah, that's really fascinating. Was that just a difference in, in maturity? Or was that a difference also in the way the programs approached uh, the technique and the artistry of dance? Probably yes. Um, I, you know, the the program at Barrow was very focused on producing professional dancers and yeah. you know, churning out people. And they they didn't necessarily advocate for the idea that you graduate. You know, a lot of people left early because they got into companies, and it wow. wasn't at that time an expectation that you had a college degree to be a dancer. When I went to Columbia, the you know the teaching approaches was much more focused on modern and contemporary dance very okay. much of the ethos of Shirley Mordeen. And my first semester at Columbia was Shirley's last. And so um, my mentors were Jan Urker, Ginger Farley, yeah. Shirley, Colleen Halloran. So these sorts of really embedded people within the Chicago modern dance community that really pushed me in terms of composition. And I think what I started to see was that dance didn't have to be this super elite, super physical yeah. pursuit that, you know, that I started to see dance in the world. Like I could see a dance sitting on the L train on my yeah. way home, or I could <laughs> see a dance, you know, in a public park. Yeah. Whereas before I had this really specific idea about what dance was and what it looked like and the, like what was required in order to do it. Yeah. 
And um, so that was really exciting to me. That's great. That's really great. Yeah, I I think a lot of people don't go and see dance because they feel that it's, you know, sort of uh, almost elite. Uh, Garrett Anderson and I were talking about this, uh, you know, trying to remove barriers between uh, between the dancers and the art form and the people that love it. And, you know, even just going into a theater is a huge barrier, you know, like, what do I wear and how do I act? And am I clapping at the right time? Or, you know, and to me, that's so ironic, not ironic to me, that's, um, uh, that's just not how I've ever thought because dance in particular, part of what I love about it is you're allowed to feel however the hell you want to feel about it, you know? Yeah, but I don't know that people know that going into it, right? It does yeah. have this sort of presumption of being super late. And it's like, oh, you don't understand? Well, oh, yeah. I do. And so, <laughs> I, you know, I think if if I try to do anything intentionally in my writing, it's like to make it okay to not know. And so even if even if the dance critic is saying like, I don't know what, what that was, but I kind of liked it. Yeah. Or I don't know how I feel about that. I think yeah. that kind of honesty, hopefully, is is uh, something that's refreshing to readers. That's great. That's really great. It's certainly refreshing to me. So, okay, so you ha- it seems like you had these wildly different, but both really um, useful experiences at, uh, at Barra and then Columbia. Um, when it was time to sort of transition into the professional world, you were struggling with an injury, right? Yeah. So the final dress rehearsal of my last show at Columbia, I busted mm-hmm. my foot. And I'll be honest, to this day, I still don't know what happened. Wow. Um, yeah, I uh, I wasn't, I guess, taking the best care of myself. And so mm-hmm. after I put it up in the air and iced it, then I went and worked an eight hour shift at Starbucks and then Ooh. I got some acupuncture. And so I probably did some damage. Um that could have been avoided if I had treated that injury properly right away. But essentially, I my suspicion is that I dislocated my second toe and tore a ligament in my foot. Wow. And so it's really challenging as a barefoot dancer to not be able to dance barefoot. Yeah. <laughs> but I also at the time had an apprentice contract with Luna Negra Dance Theater, mm-hmm. um, now defunct, but it was yeah. a really fantastic company at the yeah. time and i had made a connection with eduardo Valaro, the, the then director while i was at columbia and i was also apprenticing for the company at the same time okay so because i never really treated that injury with the respect that it deserved uh, it mm-hmm. never really healed i kept getting re-injured i kept re-pulling that foot mm. and it created a really difficult work environment to be in this rigorous company structure and be constantly struggling with an injury and at the time luna negro was a really small company they didn't have the infrastructure for like medical services it was all pro bono stuff and right. and i didn't have the best insurance at the time <laughs> so yeah, um, yeah so that was something that you know really prevented me from continuing as a performer as the thing that I was going to do in dance. Yeah. So I ultimately ended up retire, like quasi retiring at age 25. That's got to be a difficult moment to handle that. That could very easily cast you into uh, a a pit of despair, not to sound too melodramatic. Well, it, it was dramatic. And I, you know, honestly, growing up in the dance tradition that I studied, which was mm-hmm. ballet and modern, there really were very um, cemented ideas of what success looked like. And so to have my career basically over before it started. Yeah. 
um, was really, really difficult to deal with because I hadn't imagined myself doing anything else. I thought, well, I'll teach on the side and then, you know, 10, 20 years from now, like I'll transition into that. And it's strange how that one moment has sort of driven a lot of the flashpoints of my career. And, you know, going back, it's like, I'm kind of so glad that that happened to me. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Uh, So here you are. As an apprentice for Luna Negra, your your foot is acting up again and you're coming to the realization that you can't, you know, there's it's impossible to make a true career out of this. So so what do you do next? So like most dancers, I also had, you know, 14 other jobs. Um, (laughs) And so there was some diversification. And as an unpaid apprentice, it didn't you know, it just put a lot of time back into my day when I. Um, said that I wanted to take a break from performing. Mm-hmm. Um, so at the time, I was working at Starbucks, and I also was teaching dance at a bunch of park districts. I was yep. hauling it to the suburbs every afternoon. Yep. And I also got involved with the Mayor Kaplan Jewish Community Center in Skokie, oh, where yeah. I actually choreographed community musical theater for like five years. And that is that is a really fun, strange um, mark on my (laughs) my (laughs) resume that kind of saved me. I taught dance there for five years and choreographed at least half a dozen, if not more than that, musicals. Um, And that was super fun. So I was doing that. And I also worked at the Menominee Club for boys and girls. Mm. I started... The summer after I graduated from school, I got a phone call that was like, hi, do you want to be the dance teacher's assistant? So I started as the dance teacher's assistant at Menominee Club for seven bucks an hour. Wow. And um, ultimately, in my tenure, tenure with the Menominee Club, wow. kind of moved through the ranks such as they are. There aren't many. It's a very, it's a very lateral organization. There right, are like yeah. five jobs. <laughs> um, but I yeah. moved through that organization and was... Um, running most of the performing arts programs by the time I had been there almost 10 years. Wow. Um, if I, if I see any sort of through line in your, in your career, it's connection with the community and it's teaching and, and, you know, and teaching an appreciation of the art form somehow. I hope so. (laughs) That's what I tried to do. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, it's great. It's so impressive. Um, now, if we fast forward a little bit, you you have a lot on your CV that involves, I think the Art Intercepts website describes you trying to bring science and dance sort of closer together. One thing that I very quickly realized when I started working in dance was that the level of athleticism and like uh, physicality involved in having a career as a dancer in a contemporary or ballet company in particular was akin to a world-class athlete. Mm-hmm. And so you have spent a lot of time uh, studying kinesiology and essentially it seems to me uh, looking at sports science and trying to apply that to dance. Would you say that's accurate? Totally. I think, you know, if we just tie the knot a little bit there, it all kind of came back to me asking questions about what happened to my dance career and if it could have gone differently. And I was starting to think about as as an arts administrator, as a person who taught dance technique, Mm -hmm. what are some things that I could do to teach dancers in a way that they're less likely to get injured? And that can honestly start at a really young age. 
my relationship with dance is is one kind of way, but then mm-hmm. people who take dance recreationally have a totally different relationship with it. Yeah. How can we connect those dots to make sure that even at like an elite level where where dancers are training like athletes, mm-hmm. can we teach them and train them in a way where they get less injured, where their careers can be longer, and it's just all in all a more sustainable career path. Yeah. And so in thinking about that, I, st- I sort of started to ask questions about my own career and about the mm-hmm. sus- sustainability of what I was doing. I still never really took care of my injury. I was like mm-hmm. working five jobs and I just saw that never really ending. Yeah. So I knew that I had this interest in science. I took a bunch of classes at the City Colleges of Chicago and I applied to grad school. And initially, I didn't quite make the connection about dance and science because UIC doesn't have a dance program. Mm. And none of the teachers have specific, you know, interests in dance. And so I was kind of fishing all over the map and I studied multiple sclerosis and I studied Parkinson's disease and I studied exercise physiology. And I just kind of followed my nose. And at the end of my program, Mm -hmm. I realized that it would be logical and perhaps easier if I did a project on this thing that I had spent 30 years of my life doing. Right? Yeah. And so that's what led to this website, Art Intercepts. And yeah. it was initially designed as a sort of WebMD kind of catch-all um, site because, as we know, there's a lot of stuff that's on the internet that's unreliable and dance <laughs> is certainly not immune to that. There's, yeah. there's a lot of just passed down oral traditions in ballet training specifically mm-hmm. that is really not... Uh, what we might call evidence-based, right? It's, <laughs> it's, it's anecdotal yeah. at best. And so I kind of wanted to understand what I had done in my mm-hmm. own training. Like, had that come from my teachers? Was that just me taking an unsustainable path because I was so driven to achieve this one goal? Sure. And so I started to just do b- a big literature review of dance injuries and kind of wanted to produce pieces of writing that were digestible to the dance community because so often that scientific gobbledygook is not helpful, right? Yeah. It doesn't trickle down in a way that's useful to the to the dance community. Yeah. So that was my initial goal. And yeah, everything from there has kind of diverged in my academic career has kind of diverged from that starting point. That's so interesting. That's so useful for you to say like, this is what happened to me. I had a dance career that was cut short because of an injury. So now I need to investigate where did that injury come from? Could it have been prevented? I, you know, to me, I think you should be commended for investigating that. You know, it's likely that you are putting information out into the universe that the next generation of Lauren Warneckis can see and utilize and maybe not (laughs) bust up their foot uh, and maybe have some more time doing this thing that they love, which, as you said from the very beginning, already has an expiration date. Yeah. And it's not me sort of lamenting, oh, woe is me. Sure. I didn't get my dance career. It's, it is really about teeing up the next generation and about creating conversation between scientists and the dance community. Yeah. And as sort of a concrete example. Mm -hmm. I presented this survey research that I did for my master's degree about incidents of dance injury. I presented it at 
um, the International Association of Dance Medicine and Science, which is basically the main body of dance science researchers. And this wow. field is only about 25 to 30 years old. Yeah. And then I, so I talked about incidents of dance injury, sort of, um, you know, its applicability to the classroom. And they had one certain set of criticisms around my methodology, right? Mm -hmm. Like, well, mm -hmm. didn't you do a chi-square statistical analysis of this? <laughs> and then I go to the <laughs> National Dance Educators organization and their prerogative on this research was totally different yeah and their whole like ideological foundation was based on what they experience in the classroom wow. and they're so they're like the what we'd call fancy sciencey word like the epistemology how you know what you know gotcha. right of those two of those two people, which one is really grounded in research and one is really grounded in practice. And yeah. they couldn't really talk to one another. That's so fascinating. So think, you know, and then so if I get in a room with scientists, I'm sort of like, but what about the art? And when I get into a room with <laughs> artists, I'm like, but what about evidence? And so I definitely feel this kind of push and pull, which I guess is why I got to this idea of intersection, right? Yeah, of, yeah. Of intercepts right of how art and science intercept with one another yeah. and when i got out of school um with my master's degree in kinesiology from the university of illinois at chicago mm -hmm. i ultimately just kind of like kept going with what i was doing but i tried to incorporate some of what i was thinking about by just writing about it on the internet. And I had this blog platform that I had created. So I yeah. started writing there and made connections with other dance bloggers who were, who were coming up at the time. Yeah, that's great. Um, let's talk about, uh, you teach at Loyola and at Illinois Wesleyan. I do. I, I'd love to talk about what you're, what you're teaching for each program, uh, how they're different, if they're different at all. And also, uh, is there anything that you're, uh, looking into uh, spending time researching specifically right now? Yeah. So I've been teaching at Loyola for five or six years. Mm -hmm. um, kind of, I, I did a stint uh, working full time as part of the kinesiology faculty at UIC. And, yeah. and during that time, I also added a part time adjunct position at Loyola teaching exercise physiology in the exercise science program there. Yeah. Um, I should note that I don't have a degree in exercise physiology. I actually <laughs> studied motor control and learning, but oh, wow. I can, I can read books. So it's all good. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I, you know, I actually started at Loyola based on a recommendation from a professor that I had at UIC who okay. was the, the, the teacher of the one exercise physiology course that I took. So Jonathan Dugas, I will forever be grateful to and he and his wife, Lara Dugas, actually started the exercise science program at Loyola. And what I really appreciate about that program is that it's small. Mm -hmm. So when I had um, classes at UIC, I would have upwards of 180 students in a class. Wow. We had 600 kinesiology majors when I was working there. 600. And, oh, yeah, my God. Yeah, that's a lot of that's a lot of pre physical therapists right there. Oh, <laughs> so. that's why I was like, how is kinesiology like yeah. the major to have? We get a lot of those pre-health profession students okay. um, at Loyola, and I've taught exercise physiology there for five or six years. And yeah. about three years ago, Sandra Kaufman in the dance program 
um, as well as Amy Wilkinson, who was has been pivotal in the dance program at Loyola, yeah. asked if I would teach a course called Dance Kinesiology, which is Great. exactly what it sounds like. I mean, yeah. it's a four-year degree in 16 weeks. It's like all of kinesiology. <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, I'm still uh, trying to get the formula right on that course, but we yeah. basically look a lot at this question of how we train dancers so that Mm. they're like perform better and get injured less frequently yeah and then just this past spring i also started teaching dance history there as well um illinois wesleyan is a new gig for me as Mm -hmm. you know my wife took a position at illinois wesleyan so we live in central illinois and even though loyola is still in chicago i float back and forth (laughs) across the state (laughs) and i'll also be teaching exercise physiology this fall at illinois wesleyan that's great the idea of dance kinesiology as a, as a class, uh, as as any sort of course load, is that offered anywhere? Yeah, I mean, it's pretty typical within a four-year dance degree that students will take one sort of dance kinesiology EE course. <laughs> yeah. Um, they're framed really differently depending on who is who the teacher is. Um, I think, you know, it was this, serendipitous combination of my skills to teach a class like that. Yeah. But it's also then because because I'm aware of that, I'm feeling a lot of pressure to get the balance right. Yeah. And typically a dance kinesiology course will be like, here's an anatomy coloring book, excruciatingly learn all the muscles and bones that you'll never remember, <laughs> try yeah. to memorize them and squeak by with a C. And Um, you know, the idea that it's this sort of one course in a four-year curriculum and like, okay, Mm -hmm. you know your body now, right? Whereas in an exercise science curriculum, you're really doing applied anatomy all four years of your degree program. So I think there's a lot more sort of integration of that that knowledge throughout like an exercise science program. And we do have a lot of student athletes for sure who become exercise science majors. Yeah. So if I'm doing it right, hopefully I at least inspire curiosity to continue to learn more and, you know, balance that with like a healthy dose of overwhelm of like, this is way more information than you can possibly (laughs) learn in a three credit hour course over the, over the course of 16 weeks. But I think, you know, what I try to do is, is again, find that balance. Like, is this material that would resonate with the scientists and Mm -hmm. with the artists in a way Mm -hmm. that will create a healthy relationship with dance training because I think particularly in our Western forms in ballet and modern dance, we're still in this idea that you have to suffer in order to be successful. Yeah. And I'm just not down with that. So my approach is less focused on you're going to get injured and here's what's to do about it. And more about here are things that we can borrow from exercise science and exercise physiology that create more sustainable careers for athletes. Yeah. I think that's fantastic. Uh, I, you know, as someone who was raised sort of on the tail end of no pain, no gain. I mean, we, I was a kid that did all sorts of sports. You know, I spent a lot of time doing long distance running and there's a parallel there between runners. I read a statistic in runner's world years ago and I could not tell you where they found the research, but it was essentially like 89% of runners get injured over the course of their career. And the the article was sort of like, how, why are we doing this wrong? You know, like running is a thing that should be natural to us. And I think also 
dance is a thing that's natural to us. It's so uh, it's so rooted in our culture, in our you know, when people celebrate, they do things that resemble dance, you know, well, they <laughs> myself dance. included. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's such a good point, Matt. And I think, you know, there are so many important parallels between a sport like running and dance. Yeah. And there's such a stigma in dance toward things like running. You know, there are parallels in terms of incidents of injury and mm -hmm. yeah. And like the culture of that sport. But if we kind of push it forward into the elite sport arena and we compare yeah. that with professional dancers, yeah. the athlete is a commodity. And if that athlete right. is injured, they're benched and they're taken care of and they continue to be paid. Yeah. And often because there's so little money and investment in dance, mm -hmm. if you get injured, I'm sorry, I can move on to the next dancer. Thank you very much. Yeah. And so that's sort of the ongoing existential question that I that I am trying to answer. Yeah, I think and it's an important question to answer. Um, I think it's really fascinating. Dance kinesiology to me, like it's like obviously you are teaching it like duh I, I you know i look at you and i'm like yeah no uh, yeah this why would you be teaching anything else i think it's the only directly translatable <laughs> skill from the two degrees that i have so <laughs> one in dance one in kinesiology <laughs> right 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 that's great oh wow are you working on anything on the research side specifically or are you more just focused on trying to be a, a good educator right now well, at the moment, because I'm an adjunct, I don't really have a place for that work to live. And yeah. while I was at UIC, I actually started working on a PhD in integrative pathophysiology, which is fancy, fancy term. But ultimately, I was still invested in this question. How do we train dancers in a way that they get injured less frequently, they have longer, better careers, and that they perform better? Right. And I came up against this question of what what does perform better mean? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. When you're looking at a field like dance and we're also considering all of the sort of historical context around theatrical concert dance. Sure. You know, and in my role as a critic, I think all the time about what is good, right? What does it right. mean to perform better in dance? Yeah. And so being in a kinesiology department studying integrative pathophysiology, they don't, they don't much uh, relate to question, existential esoteric <laughs> questions like, but what is good dance? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. often like the field of dance science has attempted to answer this question and attempted to create kind of a numerical quantitative model for how you measure dance. Because wow. if I'm going to create a study about I'm putting this cross training model on these dancers and it makes them perform better, how am I measuring what better is? Right. And a lot of the current literature on dance explores it through metrics that we would use in sports. So sure. say, for example, if you can do more push-ups on a push-up test, you have greater upper body strength and then you're a quote unquote better dancer. <laughs> and so I started just kind of poking holes in that literature and and ultimately came to the question of, well, what is good dance? Right. Can we measure performance? And if we can, what does that look like? And this relates directly to you. Yeah. Because if we think about the context in which dance is performed, it's totally opposite to the context that dance is studied, yeah. which is usually in a cold room with 
fluorescent lights and no <laughs> costumes and no yeah. music. No side light hitting you in the face. No, yeah, exactly. <laughs> no dramatic side light casting a shadow on your face. And so... And so you have to consider all of those things when you consider whether or not a performance was good. And so yeah. maybe a performance, how we judge a performance and how we judge a dancer are two different things. Yeah. And if you think of like, I always go to the example of Margot Fontaine, who's one of the most celebrated ballerinas in the United Kingdom. Mm-hmm. And she just girl couldn't get the, her leg all that high. And so it was <laughs> like, but she's extraordinary. And yeah. so there are things that are, you know, that are really essences of dancers that we can't measure. So my yeah. ultimate question is like, well, what is good dance? Mm-hmm. Is it possible to measure that? And if right. not, then how do we guide our coaching techniques in a way that is evidence-based? Yeah, I don't have a place for that work to live right now. I'm accepting <laughs> applications. Um, <laughs> and, you know, it's I, I kind of paused my PhD. I'm not even sure I need to finish that. But this is sure. a question that continues to to pique my curiosity. Sure, sure. Um, I and because it has piqued my curiosity and we could probably talk for the entire podcast episode about this. But when you make recommendations to dancers about what they can do to be a quote unquote better dancer. And let's for the purpose of this conversation, let me just frame that as like a dancer that is less prone to injury. Sure. What what sort of uh, what sort of things are you recommending? What sort of you know, what are you focusing on? Sure. So if I widely generalize yeah, here, yeah. Um, you know, when I think about cross training for dancers and there has been because the da- field of dance science is growing. Yeah. Um, there are a lot of large companies that now have sort of, you know, sponsored cross training programs that collaborate with dance scientists, with exercise physiologists and oh, great. and and so on and so forth. Um and and that's all great. And I think when we think about cross training, we have to think about what that word says. It's right. cross training, right? So that training should look different than what dance training looks like. Whatever that dance training is, whether it's ballet, tap, jazz, whatever. Yeah. Um whatever that training is, you need to do kind of the opposite of that in order to prevent injury. Maybe that looks like running for some people. Sure. Maybe that looks like cycling or maybe that looks like weightlifting um but what it probably doesn't look like is yoga and pilates which shares a lot of the same movement patterns that dancers do in their daily class sure and so while i'm totally pro yoga pilates somatic Mm -hmm. practices so wonderful yeah when we promote those as cross-training applications they're actually a little bit too similar yeah. And you can develop overtraining in certain movement patterns that are familiar to you. And I think dancers often have the mentality of like repetition, 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 that if I just sure. do the thing, I'll become better at that thing. And I don't want to, quote unquote, make my thighs big by running. I Oof, don't want to lose yeah. my turnout. I don't want to lose my flexibility. But by actually, you know, recognizing that dancers statistically mm. are pretty unfit compared to other athletes. They get away with a lot because they often have low body weight and lots of flexibility. Sure. And so things like training aerobic capacity, things Mm -hmm. like training, um, training glute strength, you know, when you're standing in turnout all the time as a ballet or most modern dancers will often do. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You're not, 
training the outsides of your legs. And so all of these sorts of things are recommendations that kind of go against the historical practices and like passed down things that a dance teacher might promote. Yeah. So when we think about strength and conditioning for dancers in order for them to become injured less often, Mm -hmm. it, it really looks like not dance. (laughs) Yeah. That's great. (laughs) In a nutshell. Yeah. Yeah. That's really interesting. I, uh, I'd love to switch gears and talk a little bit more about your parallel life as an arts critic. Um, you said to me that you had a friend who asked you to come and review his, his performance, right? For your blog. And you were like, uh, this is a terrible idea. Please, please tell me about that. <laughs> that is uh, pretty much exactly what happened. Uh, Chris Knowlton, who also happens to be an extraordinary bioengineer working at uh, Rush University wow. in their in their motion lab. Mm. Um, so he and I are very much like of the same brain in that we're very like you know right brain and left brain. Yeah. And he, <laughs> his his pickup company at the time called the Dance Team mm-hmm. was putting on a show. It was his first full length produced concert at the old Lynx Hall atop a bar at Clark Newport in Sheffield in Chicago. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this space is extraordinary. It has very uncomfortable folding chairs and no air conditioning (laughs) and L trains going by, but it's very sentimental (laughs) to those of us who grew up in the Chicago dance community. Yeah, Lynx Hall is like the... the, It's the common denominator, (laughs) really. It's it's always there. It keeps coming back up, which is great. Chris was having a show there and at the time there was really a focus around how do young choreographers get their shows reviewed because um, at that time we still had two full-time critics. Hetty Weiss was at the Sun-Times. Yeah. Well, uh, Laura Mulzahn was at the Reader and Sid Smith was at the Tribune. Right. But because there was so much dance happening, it was difficult to get a critic to show up to your cute little pickup show at Link's Hall. And Chris wrote me and said, like, hey, you have a blog. Like, would you review my show? Mm -hmm. And I said, I think that's a terrible idea because I don't have any interest in being a dance critic. (laughs) And and of course, I did it anyway. And um, (laughs) almost overnight, Mm -hmm. I started getting press releases in my inbox. (laughs) Throughout that time, I had been writing articles for dance blogs and for my own about like how to teach better to prevent all the stuff we've been talking about. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it turns out that like nobody wants to really read that Um, (laughs) (laughs) as a form of like popular media consumption. Uh You know, it was the most page views I had ever had on my blog. And it sort of illustrated that there was this gap in criticism of lower budget, independent dance in the city. And so I kind of, I kind of just went with it. Now, now, of course, you've written for the Trib and uh, the Sun-Times, right? And no, not the Sun-Times. Oh, no, not the Sun-Times. It feels like the Sun-Times is the only place that you haven't (laughs) published a review. (laughs) I guess, when did you start taking it seriously? And then where did that, uh, and how did that change your approach to arts criticism? Several months after that first review, and I had, I actually so much have Eric Etherly to thank because Mm. he at the time was, and sadly he died in a car accident several years ago, but he at the time was the publicist for the Joffrey Ballet. And 
he was my biggest fan and he threw me <laughs> all of these bones just to like come write about dance on your yeah. blog and and was just really the person who treated me like a legitimate critic even though I was self-publishing on my blog. Yeah. And I remember I had taken on so much volume because I was also working full time and, and right. doing all the stuff in my other life and mm -hmm. I remember being really overwhelmed and I said, Eric, I don't think I can do this piece. I'm totally overwhelmed. And he said, it's fine. You're going to be great. Mm -hmm. Think big picture, small paragraph. <laughs> and that is something that has stuck with me. So it was Giordano and I had this gorgeous splash photo of mm -hmm. like, uh, Megan and Devin, I think. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah, and yeah. then this, you know, 250 word review. Yeah. And um, and so that really encouraged me to continue to write. Uh, several months later, See Chicago Dance, which is a, our dance service organization in Chicago, yeah. and has an editorial arm. It actually started as a way... It started as a program for audience engagement. Mm -hmm. And part of that audience engagement was creating this space for professional reviews to live on that website that couldn't necessarily be covered by the newspapers. Okay. So the original writers of that site were Sid Smith and Laurel Mulzahn, who were representing oh. the Tribune and the Reader at the yeah. time. Right. And the very first Chicago Dance Month was just kind of an observation of the fact that there was this explosion of local dance performances happening in the month of April on an annual basis. Yeah. And Sid actually had the idea to bring on an additional writer in order to help cover the overflow, since they both were also full-time critics for their respective publications. Yeah. And he also thought it would be cool to like flirt for a month with this idea of the artist critic. Right. Because at the time <laughs> I was still teaching, I was still do producing some choreography of my own independently. Sure. And I had a conversation with Sid and he said, you know, we're going to try this thing out. But I just want to tell you, like, it's not going to work. <laughs> 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 he basically said, you can't do both. Yeah. And, and we're still like 10 years later, we're still having this conversation of whether or not it's possible to be a uh, quote unquote objective critic and be yeah. embroiled within the community. Yeah. So conflicts of interest is like a whole other conversation. Right. But right. um but I that was my first sort of professional paid review was on C Chicago Dance. Yeah. And it was terrifying. It was a review of a River River North Dance Chicago show and that I actually didn't really like all that much. And I I was terrified to say that. Mm. Uh and sort of had to phone a friend and, right, yeah. and get encouragement about just saying what I saw. And, yeah. and as long as I could own that, yeah. you know, my sort of like barometer is if I can tell a person that to their face, then, yeah. then I should be able to put it in print. Um, yeah. So that's kind of how it started. I started moonlighting at see Chicago dance mm -hmm. Sid retired and Laura went to the Tribune. The sort of cascade of changes in yeah. criticism happened. Um, I moved into Vicky Crane's role as the dance writer at Windy City Times. Gotcha. Vicky became the editor of C Chicago Dance. <laughs> Laura went to the Tribune and we all just kind of shuffled our jobs. Yeah. And and that's kind of that's kind of how it happened. I stayed in that arrangement for a while mm -hmm. and then eventually moved on from the Windy City Times. 
And um, when Laura retired from the Tribune five years later, mm-hmm. I got a call from Chris Jones asking the theater critic um, yeah. if I would be interested. And I, I guess I was. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. We'll be right back after this message from our sponsors. Hi there. If you're one of the potentially tens of people that listen to this podcast, then you already know that cueing this cheesy bossa nova music means it's time for a brief commercial break. Aw, man, I don't want a commercial right now. Just listen to how much money we spent on that sweet, sweet background music. That's kind of a weird thing to say. It must have been at least $42.17 plus tax. Why is he being so specific about it? Surely you must be saying to yourselves, this Matt Miller guy is a real professional. Actually, I... I was thinking I might make a sandwich, maybe some ham, or... And my, what an outstanding voice he has. He does kind of sound like that Arby's guy. I could listen to his mellifluous baritone for hours on it. You know, Arby's, we have the meats. Ooh, I really want a sandwich right now. But did you know that Matt Miller is also a real-life professional lighting designer with almost two decades of experience in the industry? And that he offers one-on-one training in Vectorwork Spotlight? I thought he was just on that podcast. Vectorwork Spotlight is the leading CAD software program in the arts and entertainment industry and a crucial part of any lighting designer's workflow. Oh, I see what he's doing here. So, whether you're a student just starting out your Vectorworks journey or a seasoned professional looking to sharpen your drafting skills, why not consider reaching out to book a training session with Matt today? If you can manage making it through one of his podcasts without wanting to Vincent Van Gogh yourself, then chances are you might actually enjoy learning from Matt in a real-life scenario. What does Vincent Van Gogh yourself mean? Believe it or not, after 15-plus years of drafting with Vectorworks, Matt pretty much mostly knows what he's doing. Oh, God. I just Googled it, and it says Vincent Van Gogh cut off his own ear. Details can be found at www.mmiller-lighting.com. Or feel free to reach out to Matt directly at m.miller.lighting at gmail.com. Really? We're not going to talk about Vincent Van Gogh? We're just going to let that go by with no discussion? And don't forget, if you're enjoying this podcast, please use those thumbs to rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or the podcast directory of your choice. You're sick, buddy. You know that? You are really sick. And now let's use this smooth bossa nova music to play us back to our show. The way that you approach criticism, how did, how much of it is information about the show that needs to be conveyed? How much of it is uh, is your opinion about what you saw? And how do you how do you formulate that into something that is not just not just well written, but also useful to the reader? Right. So as a critic, you have a number of jobs, right? Your job is to describe what you saw. Yeah. Uh, and for the benefit of readers who might be interested in knowing what happened, who weren't there. Sure. So as I've been told in the past, you kind of have to write in a way that proves that you were there, right? <laughs> so rich, detailed descriptions that convey to the reader what happened on stage. Okay. And that often includes, you know, description of the lights and the costumes and the dancers and also description of the movement. Yeah. It's also a form of a historical record. Mm. Right. So dance being the ephemeral form that it is, 
yeah. is really only accessible on video. That's not quite the same. So the idea is that video documentation and the written word can kind of get close to sure. giving readers an understanding of what happened. And, and because often criticism lives within journalism, mm-hmm. you know, part of your responsibility is sort of like report on the event in a semi-objective way. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a little bit more liberal leash right on on <laughs> yeah. objectivity because it's criticism yeah as my colleague lynn shapiro at c chicago dance says you have to sort of look at the work and say what does it promise to be and yeah. did it live up to that promise oh interesting So you can get close through like the program notes through mm-hmm. what is conveyed about what you're going to see in this work mm-hmm. what is um demonstrated by the dancers and then and then your assessment of of whether or not a work is successful is based less on whether you like it or don't yeah. like it, but whether or not it fulfilled what it said that it was going to do. That's a really great perspective. Okay. How do you approach it when it uh, when it didn't fulfill what it was going to do? <laughs> <laughs> Which is probably not, not your least favorite review to write. Nobody likes to say mean things, right? And sure. I think it, I think it has to be said that while there are critics who have maybe maybe been doing it too long and mm. they've gotten a little bit over it <laughs> um yeah you know the- theoretically we all love the art form that we cover yeah. and our intentions are good right the intention is never to tear anybody apart because sure. your your last responsibility as a critic is to create a piece of art in and of itself that entertains and engages the reader Right. Yeah. Good point. How do I convince someone to read the dance column that has no interest in dance the way that I read the world news column, but have no affiliation with (laughs) foreign countries? Right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So so part of it is that it exists within this media. Um, So you want it to kind of be compelling and interesting and pique people's curiosity. Yeah. So I think, you know, for me, what I've sort of put in as rules for myself is that. Mm. I don't criticize people's bodies and I don't um, make judgments about who they are as people. Okay. I try not to get personal because as we talked about, right, the performers are just there doing a job. Right, right. I try and think a lot about how all the collaborative elements of a performance work together. Mm -hmm. I mean, I remember writing about a show that was really, really beautiful dance. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately, the, the lights were... Oof off base right like <laughs> just missed cues dark spaces dancers Ooh. weren't in their light and and it ruined the show yeah. and and so you know i sort of said something to the effect of like that was a great dance i would have liked to have seen it and <laughs> you know <laughs> and, yeah. but but then but then you just leave it there and resist the urge to like drag that person through the mud yeah right yeah, sure there's something of value in every single performance yeah and i think at the end of the day, the worst review I've ever written in terms of like critic criticizing a show, mm-hmm. I think it came down to like, they have clearly put a lot of time and effort into this mm-hmm. and that's to be commended. And they clearly <laughs> believe in what they're doing. Uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. And I don't get it. I don't like it. I think it's ridiculous, but <laughs> at the end of the day they do. And that's, that's kind of what's important. 
let's change gears here a little bit. So you've mentioned before, but I'd love for you to talk a little more specifically about um, C Chicago Dance and Art Intercepts. Art Intercepts is, uh, you created that website by yourself, correct? Yes. And that's what you're referring to, what we've been referring to when we're talking about articles about dance kinesiology and trying to take science and dance and make them meet, right? It definitely started out that way. And then it, as my <laughs> research sort of went dormant, uh-huh. um, it became more so just kind of a catch-all. Okay. Uh, it's important to me to let myself have that platform if I need it and want it. Mm-hmm. Um, so because a job in writing is so porous and changes often, yeah. you know, I always have this sort of um, cornerstone where if I'm between jobs or something, I can still write if I want to. Um, yeah. And I think that that's, that's part of the reason I've maintained it. It is, it is a blog without a specific identity. Um, gotcha. Because if you look at it today, much of that stuff that it started as with mm-hmm. combining dance and science literature is like buried. It's still all there. You can find it if you want to. Sure. But it's definitely buried. And I used my blog as more of a platform to talk about criticism and okay. um, and actually review and preview shows too. Oh, okay. Interesting. So it's sort of, it's almost like the narrative of Art Intercepts has taken the narrative of your career. Yeah, for sure. Okay, great. Um, and then talk a little bit more about See Chicago Dance. Uh, this is an organization that I am aware of, but uh, and have been aware of for a number of years. But like I, you know, I'm not quite sure what their role is in the dance community uh, here in Chicago. You know, most major cities. I'm a, I'm aware of a similar organization in New York, mm-hmm. in Houston. I think there's one in the Bay Area. And they all look different, but it's essentially, it's a dance service organization. The original name of the organization was Audience Architects. Okay. And cchicagodance.com was its flagship program. And that was this online digital platform for reviews and previews and information. Mm -hmm. And so Audience Architects sort of became this... I mean, it was like art intercepts. They're like, what is that exactly? So, but but the <laughs> yeah. the initial goal was it was an organization that began with a startup grant that was about developing dance audiences and yeah. and engaging dance audiences. So many of its programs are focused on marketing and audience engagement. We have a ticketing platform. Mm. We have an events calendar. Anybody in the dance community with any kind of dance event. Yeah. And dance is a very broad uh, definition, according to See Chicago Dance, can mm-hmm. list on the calendar for free and then it's eligible to be reviewed um, by one of our critics. And yeah. so that's one arm of the organization. The other is around services for dance companies because that, you know, by extension, engages audiences. So providing yeah. marketing assistance, providing Things like they have a postcard distribution program. They have a floor oh. that you can rent. They have pop-up programs. They sponsor Chicago Dance Month. So wow. the idea is that these are a lot of things that larger companies have the capacity to do internally. But yeah. the goal is to sort of fill that gap for smaller organizations to get them out there, let them concentrate on doing their work, mm-hmm. and then engage this service organization to sort of add in some of those tools that larger companies are able to do on their own. That's great. 
warning, it's going to get cheesy. It sounds like if you want to uh, see dance in Chicago, go to see Chicago dance. The name is uh, <laughs> is not complex. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're trying to do. We're trying to yeah. get people to see see dance in Chicago. So yeah. that's what we're going to call it. <laughs> and, you know, something that people don't know is that, like, according to our paperwork, there are 200 dance companies, wow. more than 200 dance companies in Chicago. And when we look nationally, people often just point to two or three. Yeah. And, and so the idea is to really create some conversation around the wealth of diversity. Do we do a perfect job? Probably not because we're such a large city. There's so much like geographic diversity. And so we're continuing to work on ways to engage with further ends of the city, right out West, South and to the far North and to try and also diversify what we do to, to better serve um, dance forms that are not Western. Right. Sure. Let's uh, I want to talk briefly uh, uh, about you have published this. Uh, and of course, I want to talk about it because um, my uh, lovely fiance was involved. Uh, there's this ebook that you published called Discover Your Dance Career. Um, and that's still available online, right? Oh, absolutely. Great. I'd love for you to talk about uh, just a little bit about the project, how it happened and, and you know, who might want to read it. Yeah. When I first started getting involved in blogging, I established connection with two extraordinary women, Nichelle Suzanne and Catherine Tully, who mm-hmm. um, were kind of pioneers of dance blogging, if we, <laughs> if, we if that's a thing. Yeah. Um, you know, at the time that they were forming their websites, like Facebook was just catching on. Twitter was mm-hmm. a barren Mm-hmm. You know, a barren yeah. desert. <laughs> there was not nearly the sort of propagation of blogs that there is today. Yeah. The three of us have stayed connected and we've done a couple of projects together. And the idea behind this book, Discover Your Dance Career, was to just survey the wide breadth of possibilities within the dance field. Sure. So we interviewed designers, we interviewed production managers, we interviewed the most extraordinary company manager, Marissa Santiago, obviously. (laughs) Um, We interviewed teachers, Broadway choreographers, photographers, you know, just like any sort of thing under the umbrella of dance and just ask like, how did you get here? What do you do? Why do you do it? And what advice can you give? Yeah. Um, and so we interviewed 60 people and wow. uh, put it together. It took three years. <laughs> wow. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Okay. I will, I'll, I'll keep a link uh, for the ebook in the show notes in case anyone's interested. It's super affordable. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great sales pitch. It's super affordable. <laughs> um, I'd love to switch gears a little bit and approach the topic of diversity. Um, you are, uh, you are, of course, married to a woman, which uh, I believe technically makes you a lesbian, if I'm uh, saying that word correctly. <laughs> I think that's how you pronounce that, yeah. <laughs> yes, okay, very good. No, but uh, <laughs> I, I, uh, I'm, I'm so great at interviewing. Um, I, I would love to hear from your perspective how being a woman has affected your career in education, in the arts, and also how being gay has affected your career and 
Have you experienced discrimination? Sure, that's a lot. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. Way to tee me up. <laughs> How much time do you have? Um, you know, I don't know that I can specifically point to moments in my career where I felt like being a woman or being gay or being both of those things mm-hmm. held me back or affected my career or the potential to get a job or anything like that. I think, yeah. you know... When I came out, I was living, uh, I was living like footsteps from Andersonville in Chicago. Yeah. So I was, you know, I was absorbed in a community that looked like me and thought like me. Yeah, and that created a lot of safety. I was Catholic. I was like a Catholic ballerina, mm-hmm. and I'm also exploring my sexuality, and those things were felt really dissonant. Yeah. And so when I first came out was actually as I was struggling with that injury. So yeah. part of my exit from the dance world was really also this confusion about like I don't see any examples of gay ballerinas around me. I see a lot of examples of gay men in dance, and I didn't mm-hmm. see as many examples of gay women, particularly in ballet-based forms. Yeah. That is a particular thing that I think has not changed and should. Yeah. It goes back to all the stigmas about femininity and mm-hmm. and all of that. And so, you know, as I was coming out, I really swung the pendulum. I was like, I'm done with dance. I'm cutting my hair. I'm wearing a polo shirt. All the flowers <laughs> are coming off the wall. And then, but that didn't feel quite right either. Yeah, so yeah, I had yeah. to wrestle with the idea that certain parts of my identity didn't have to change yeah. and that it was okay to, to like ballet and that it was okay to like have long hair. And right. so I think, you know, those things coincided in terms of my exit from performance, mm-hmm. my experiences, I think function as a little bit of a barometer for why I'm so sensitive to, you know, how I describe other people's bodies or the assumptions that I make about them. Yeah, interesting. When I first started teaching at UIC, mm-hmm. before I started at Loyola, UIC is an extraordinarily diverse institution. Yeah. But the co-mingling of cultures and sexual identities and gender expressions and races mm-hmm. only happens in the classroom. There's oh, wow. a lot of sort of pockets of groups of friends that look very similar to the demographics of Chicago. Sure. But in a way that was so um, important for me to have conversations like a gay white woman from the suburbs to have conversations with orthodox Muslim hijab wearing students and like, well, I, why can't you get in the pool? I don't understand that. So like, (laughs) yeah, you know, so those sorts of conversations I think were, were really important in sort of framing my ideas about diversity, equity, and inclusion, and the desire to not judge a book by its cover. Yeah. So that that was why I opted to join the um, diversity, equity, inclusion panel in the College of Applied Health Sciences, where I was working at UIC at the time. Gotcha. And because, you know, it came to the table, like, why do we need this? We're so diverse. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> but, but, the, but we need to co-mingle these diverse groups together and create some sort of understanding between them. Mm. Um, so I guess that's what I've got on that front. <laughs>
One of the things I've always loved about the arts, but particularly theater and uh, and dance and uh, just performance in general, is that you know even early on in middle school and high school, it often feels like sort of the island of misfit toys. Everyone that that needs acceptance ends up there. I think it's because we are prone to accept everyone, and. In some ways, I don't wonder if that's because, like, it takes a village and we need slave labor. So, like, any 14-year-old <laughs> that wants to paint the back of this flat black, like, come on. We right. can pick up a paint roller. We don't care if you're gay, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I think also it's just, like, the pursuit of something that involves, like, developing emotional intelligence and human connection can only uh, help to foster, I think, a better conversation. But I, I, I want to highlight something that you were saying earlier about, like, there's no, you know, there's not representation of, like, prominently visible gay ballerinas. I think one thing that I've really learned is how much representation actually truly matters. Case in point, there's a lot of representations of gay men in dance. You know, when I was 19, my uh, good friend Jack, who's actually going to be the best man in my wedding, uh, he's gay. And I, w I met him when we were when I was a freshman in undergrad. And Jack does not subscribe to what uh, a 19 year old in the middle of Nebraska would think that a gay man looks or acts like. I had been friends with him for like maybe a year and he made a, a joke that involved um, innuendo that could not be uh, mistaken. And I looked at him and I was like, wait, are you gay? And he was like, yeah, where have you been? And I was like, <laughs> I was like, but you have a beard. Right. <laughs> and he was like, oh, sweetheart, <laughs> you know, but so, yeah. you know, I think uh, uh, so I think representation is is huge. And like, of course, that, you know, that's sort of a funny anecdote about like I, gay men were not represented to me as like people that look like Jack. And like as an adult, right. of course, like I've had gay friends that that look and act in very different ways. How do you think we change the narrative about representation? Um, you know, I think like anything else, it's really important to appreciate that these things exist on a spectrum. Mm -hmm. The attachment to identity and and the multiplicity of identities, yeah, like anything else, puts a certain label or stigma or set of expectations around what that looks like. Yeah. As I said, I kind of had this second coming out where yeah. I could express the things that I knew and valued about myself already yeah. and then kind of fold in the, that layer of my sexuality. And when I was coming out was, you know, it wasn't that long after Matthew Shepard had been murdered Oof, in Wyoming. Yeah. And I think something that's not totally appreciated among younger generations is how difficult even just the act of coming out was and how terrifying that was Yeah, because we've come so far and the current generation of high, high school and college students have never known a United States without marriage equality. Right. I think it's important to kind of remember how far we've come for sure. Yeah. But then also how far we have to go. Yeah. You know, if you look at the, the, the demographics of dance writ large, it's very different than the demographics of dance leaders. Yeah. And 
for the most part, especially in our Western ballet, modern dance forms, right. the leadership is almost entirely white and male. Mm-hmm. And and sexuality is sort of like <laughs> strangely um, left out of that picture. Yeah, yeah, um, Because sure. so many um, gay men rise to leadership in dance. Sure. Because the leadership determines the stories that are told on stage. And... Yeah. A lot of audience members do want to look up on the stage and see a fairy tale or see something, some sort of extraordinary physicality that they can't do. But ultimately, they also want to see stories and images that they can relate to from their own lives. Mm -hmm. So in the big push to diversify audiences, if we don't change the content of what's being put on stage or change the agency of who those choreographers in the room are, then that's never going to change. And you're going to continue to have predominantly old white audiences. Yeah, I think it has to start from the top down, Uh, you know, from the top of the organization to the back row of the balcony. I've heard that from a lot of my more diverse friends and colleagues recently is like a board that is entirely white and male and a leadership team that is entirely white and male or mostly white and male. Like that's not going to create the kind of representation that people are really looking for. Like what would it look like if having a program for choreographers of color or having a program for women wasn't this sort of special thing that was apart from the rest of the season. Like, look, we're doing this whole program that's by women. Right, Right, yeah. And that sort of mentality around it often checks a box of diversity, equity, and inclusion that they need to check, but isn't doesn't create some sort of like foundational change within the organization. So what would it look like if every program (laughs) incorporated naturally people of color and women? Yeah. I think that would make a huge difference. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Is there anything that somebody who looks like me can do, you know, even little things to sort of like help create an an environment where that kind of representation is possible? Well, if I even go beyond the level of the executive leadership of a dance organization and look to their boards or look to the funders there's there are certain groups that are of the idea that we just kind of need to burn the whole thing down and start over. I'm less of that mentality and more that we can evolve and shift and mold. And that's less about like me being afraid of giving up the power that I hold in the community, which I realize is is pretty extraordinary. Yeah. And more about like how do we how do we avoid the same mistakes that have been perpetuated over decades, if not centuries. And so it's actually harder, right? It would be easier to burn it all down and start over. Right, right. Yeah. You probably will remember this. There was a major, uh, I think, ballet company somewhere here in North America that had a season. It was like, this is choreography about women. It's a season of women. And they were like all male choreographers. And I, Oh yeah. Yeah. It was a, com- it was a company based in Montreal. Oh, that's and it. The, yeah. <laughs> the marketing copy was like three men in this pink filmy, like Pepto-Bismo colored oh um, bubble. And the program was called La Femme. And all three of the choreographers were men and they're like, it's an ode to women. Uh, well, <laughs> That didn't last. Yeah, (laughs) yeah, yeah. Oh, my God. They actually faced a lot of backlash for it. So people called them on it. Um, Yeah. 
as, as well they should. I think, you know, being intentional is one thing, but yeah. you have to remember that like your best intentions ignore other sort of lenses. And so yeah. if if you're not willing to like step to the side and let somebody be in charge, at least surround yourself with people who have different experiences. Yeah. And get a, you know, get a a quorum. We like allow it to be a discussion rather than one person making the decision. I've been reading uh, lately, it may have actually been Chris Jones in the Tribune sort mm-hmm. of questioned, are we kind of done with the whole one person as the leader of an arts organization? Should oh, this be more of a sort of co-op or a collaborative yeah. of people in the executive leadership so that there is a wealth of voices making the decisions? Wow, that's really interesting. There's a balance somewhere between being able to make decisions uh, sort of with some finality, but also those decisions having legitimate input from people that aren't you. I, I'd love to switch gears again because we're running out of time. I want to talk about COVID-19. You published a really interesting, not really a review, just an article early in the pandemic about you know, the difference between producing work digitally and live performance and the importance of live performance. At first, I thought like, oh, what an interesting sort of thought experiment, right? And now, you know, it's July and we're looking realistically at like no major performance. You know, Joffrey in New York City Ballet and I think ABT as well have all canceled their nutcrackers, you know, so like nobody, particularly in dance, but most organizations are not doing any live performances, not any major live performances in 2020 at all. So here now we're in it for the long haul. So which I think makes it a more important question, the idea of producing content digitally. And does that take away from the live work? What are your thoughts on sort of how companies are approaching the sort of the quote unquote pivot decision here? I think I wrote that in like late March. Yeah. And it was looking like, oh, by July, everything <laughs> will be normal. And here we are. It's yeah. July. Mm-hmm. And at that time, I really felt like I just wanted to wait. Yeah. And and that I can't say what any organization should do. And I obviously everybody's in a different situation and sure, everyone yeah. has I's to dot and T's to cross with their funders, with their audience members, with their subscribers. And so, you know, as someone who's like deeply invested in the experience of being an audience member, Mm -hmm. I just wanted to wait. (laughs) And, you know, and then the questions about the reopening plans in each state are so nuanced. And what, what do you do to ensure your patrons as they come back that A, they want to go Right. That they that they miss this thing, that this is a thing that they valued in their life that that they can't have when they're at home. Right. And B, how do you ensure that they're not risking their safety by being in that environment? Yeah. So the longer this goes on, I kind of have to open my own I my own self to the idea of digital dance platforms. Mm. But unfortunately, you know, we're dance is creating this as they go. I was thinking about, you know, what are the translatable metaphors here? So like mm-hmm. sports already has an established mode of consumption at home. Right. 
you know, theater, film already has modes of digestible consumption at, fu- at home that are very well funded and very well supported. And they are very different mm-hmm. than what the experience in the theater or the stadium is. Yeah. Cool. And those things can coexist together and that and there's profit to be had from, right, <laughs> from those right. at home consumption models. I was thinking about so I went to one digital dance show and it was fine. Yeah. It was lovely. Sure. But to find the link to the Zoom room and buy a ticket and do all, like with a football game, you just turn it on. Right, and so yeah. what are those sorts of things that actually make it natural to consume dance from your home that don't create fatigue yeah. as well as the idea that, oh, now we can just do this at home. So why would I go to a theater? Right, right. Because I don't want to wear a mask and I don't want to like, you know, stand in the cold while it's raining six feet apart from the person in front of it. So there's, <laughs> yeah. there's just, you know, the longer this goes on, the more, Matt, I have no idea <laughs> what to do. And the yeah. fact, you know, I remember... I remember thinking in June, mm-hmm. if com- if ballet companies lose their nutcrackers, this is yeah. going to be really bad. Yeah. Um, and I think there will be, unfortunately, I think there will be casualties. I yeah. think the really large institutions will probably survive. Mm-hmm. But I really fear the midsize institutions yeah. that have financial responsibilities, that have people to pay and benefits mm-hmm. to pay out, but don't have any cash in reserve. That might have been fine if if they had lost their spring season sure. and now they're losing their fall season. So, you know, I think it's really unfortunate. And and aside from a huge government dump of money into the performing arts. Right. I'm honestly not sure what's going to happen. I think it's important to say that uh, the responsible thing for the federal government to do is that very thing, a huge dump of money into the arts into live performance. I have thought for years that we were sort of like the redheaded stepchildren, but like there are millions and millions and millions of people that make their living based on live events. Mm-hmm. You know, when local municipalities and state municipalities, places like Chicago do studies on, you know, what do the arts actually do for our community? You find, you know, billions of dollars in financial benefit. And, you know, for me right now, I see we've got this pandemic that has put the industry at basically a standstill, uh, not just the arts, but all live events. McCormick Place is empty, save some, uh, you know, extra hospital bed space for COVID-19, as is the Auditorium Theater, as is the Harris. Every venue across the city is empty. That's true across the country. And there's no there's no really getting out of it with the kind of robust arts uh, and live entertainment industry that we had before without some serious government help. I think the responsible thing for Congress to do is to acknowledge that this is a huge part of our culture and our workforce and provide extra funding because we were the first people to close and we're going to be the last people to come back. Yeah. And, you know, there. I don't want to play into a poor dance narrative that tends to circulate, but if the sure. if the arts are the redheaded stepchild of the world, right, <laughs> of the right. culture sector, right. then dance is the redheaded stepchild of the performing arts. And, yeah. you know, it kind of goes back to what I was saying before about um, dancers are scrappy and resilient and they'll get it done in one way or another. Right. My hope would mm-hmm. be that people with experience in film and live streams yeah. would um, that dance would engage with them and vice versa oh, okay, so that we yeah. can actually create an experience that 
feels legit, right? That it's yeah. not like yeah. a wide shot of someone's documentation of a performance that was never meant to be consumed by the public. And oh, by the way, will you pay $30 for this? Because the arts yeah. are really hurting right now. And so, mm-hmm. um, you know, I think it, it's it's an opportunity because dance on film is definitely a thing. Oh, yeah. But dance uh, created for live performance can't automatically assume that it's going to be good on film. Right. <laughs> and so you have to just kind of like appreciate that that's a whole other medium. If that's what you're going to do right now, put dance on a digital live stream or create a film, then surround yourself with people who actually do that. Yeah. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot myself. I think there, and there's two things I want to mention. The first is, and I've mentioned this on the podcast before recently in the interview with Garrett. Um, Garrett of course is the artistic director for Bally Idaho and as I've said to you, they we were in Boise and it was the day of final dress and we got word that they were going to cancel the shows, which was absolutely the responsible thing to do. They pivoted. I keep using that word and I, I hate myself when I use it. Kickball changed. <laughs> Kickball changed. <laughs> Five, six, seven, eight. No, they... <laughs> They approach the. They had a. They have a relationship with uh, Frontrunner Films, uh, which they which has been doing a lot of the sort of promo work for them. Uh, they've really upped their digital marketing uh, image. They're consciously producing interesting content leading up to the show about the company, about the artists, uh, trying to engage in the audience, and I think a very different way from a lot of sort of traditional ballet company models, uh, and that has really impressed me. But once we got word, they called Frontrunner and were like, hey, uh, can you come in and film this and we can release it digitally? And while that process, and Frontrunner Films did an outstanding job, no time for a camera rehearsal, no time for anything, you know, uh, they they brought in, you know, about eight cameras and ended up filming the dress rehearsal and what would have been sort of an opening performance and cut mm-hmm. together a show and it was like definitely worth the money that people paid for it. Uh, you know, so there's kind of like the HMS media model of version of that where like you're bringing the artists into a theater and you're doing it professionally, the production design, the lighting, uh, it's, it's appropriate for camera and therefore a different medium. But there's also, I think, uh, another woman that I interviewed in the podcast, the, always fantastic Robin Maneka Williams. She did this really interesting undercover episodes project with Hubbard street. And it was to me like, and I don't want to subscribe too much importance to it, but to me, it felt like the answer we were looking for because, and Robin said this and it's so true. Like she would have, could have done that project if the COVID-19 pandemic had never had happened. I think that's the key. You know, I think making Zoom dances was cute in April and now it's played out. Yeah. I would add that Robin has the added benefit of just having the most extraordinary eye for aesthetics. Yeah. Yeah. You know, she she paints on a stage. Yeah. So I can see why she would have such a sensibility around film. Yeah. But watching, you know, paying money for a ticket to watch a screenshot of Zoom boxes at the risk of saying this is our new reality, yeah, we're going to have to find more sustainable and higher quality ways to do that. And I yeah. think it's possible to do it without paying for an eight camera shoot. Right, right. Otherwise, we need to start to 
create some ingenuity around how to make social distance dancing happen outside. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, I, to me, I, I think of, you know, when you're taught theater design, uh, you, uh, you know, when you approach proscenium style work, you say the proscenium is, is the picture frame, right? And so to me, like it's a, it's a brief little sidestep to say the camera is the picture frame, right? The camera frame. So like, don't utilize the proscenium only utilize the camera. And now let's make a work for that medium. And I don't mean to get super in the weeds here, but if you think about that frame of the proscenium doesn't move, the stuff moves within it, but you have the advantage of shifting a camera. So it actually presents some opportunities that we don't have creating work for a theater. And so that's exciting to me, actually. Like I want to see those works. I just don't want to see your zoom boxes. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And I think, I think it actually comes down to the fact that the theater creates a diversion. It's a different space from the space where we spend our daily lives, right? Right, We go to work, we're in our homes and then we go to the theater to, to, you know, escape a little bit from our lives. Now we're on zoom for social. We're on zoom for work. We're on zoom for art consumption. We're on (sighs) zoom for family time. You know, I think it's just like, zoom fatigue honestly that keeps me from wanting to engage with that kind of performance yeah i um i want to talk really briefly about one other subject that i know you're sort of working on and discussing actively right now which is covid19 and how it how it's affecting dance companies and dance students and is there any literature out there about safe practices in the classroom in the studio for sure. Um, really, the the main um, organization leading the charge on reopening guidelines specifically for dance mm-hmm. is uh, what's called the Task Force for Dancer Health, which is a side program of Dance USA, which is a national um, dance service organization. Okay. And so at C Chicago Dance, we actually took those guidelines and my boss, the interim executive director, mm-hmm. has been involved in a task force with the mayor's office oh, wow. um, to sort of investigate how how do we do this? How do we fit into the guidelines? Because dance doesn't quite neatly fit into the guidelines for health clubs. It doesn't right. quite neatly fit into the guidelines for restaurants. So, yeah. so there are voices in the room that are advocating for the performing arts and the specific needs of dance, which are particular, right? Yeah, yeah. So, you know, we were asking questions like, can you touch your students when you correct them? Right. Do we need more than six feet apart because of accelerated breathing rates? Mm-hmm. Can we go across the floor because that causes like airflow to potentially interact with students who are waiting on the side? Sure. In performances, what about partnering? Do we have to take out the first row of seats in order to prevent droplet spread from the performers? And so these are all sorts of questions that we're asking at C Chicago Dance and that also the Task Force on Dance for Dancer Health is looking at. Mm -hmm. Because the other issue that wasn't quite (laughs) thought out is with the reopening guidelines, theaters don't open until phase five. Yeah. Large theaters don't open until phase five. Yeah. But you have to tee that up, right? Dancers aren't immediately ready to perform (laughs) once their theater is open. So we have to look at the return to studio, the return to rehearsals and classes Mm -hmm. in order to um, make up any lost progress from being at home. Yeah. 
It's been really fantastic talking to you. I want to wrap up just by asking about what you're working on now, if you're working on anything besides just like trying to keep your head above water like the rest of us. <laughs> and then also I want to talk, I want to just briefly hit, you know, where we can find you and uh, your uh, publications, whether it's online or in print media um, and, uh, and any social media presence you'd like to. Yeah, enjoy. this has been super wide ranging, which I'm so grateful for. Cause this is honestly how my brain works. People can get a little slice of what goes on in my head. <laughs> Good. Um, what am I working on now? I am I am a freelancer at the Chicago Tribune and all of the freelancers are currently furloughed. So yeah. I have not um, written there since March. Yeah. Um, however, I continue to write for See Chicago Dance and we are really excited about this critical dance writing workshop that we're holding in, um, in August and September. Oh, because cool. of the COVID-19 crisis, we were supposed to have this little workshop where we take aspiring dance critics to a show, have them write a review and then edit it and have them learn the process. Sure. And because all those shows aren't happening, we actually partnered with my friends and colleagues in South Africa oh, cool. who are doing a digital festival for the first time ever. Cool. And so we'll also have this amazing cross-cultural exchange. And wow. part of the goal is to really, as I alluded to, kind of open up see Chicago dance even further so that we're as inclusive a platform as possible, you know, so that you're getting my perspective on tap dance, but you're also getting a tap dancer's perspective on ballet and all of the things that, <laughs> that go between there. Yeah. Um, so that's something I'm working on and excited about. I also have been working with Jamba to help curate a an American dance film platform, which are not all COVID dances, but some of them are. Yeah, <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Uh, so we're excited to. That's a partnership with the U.S. consulate that we're that I'm really excited about. That's great. Um, and then I have two longer term sort of more academic-y writing projects in the works, which I'd prefer to just leave that of there. Um, in case but we I thought am... you were lazy. <laughs> <laughs> right? um, yeah. And then, you know, while I'm off contract in my academic jobs, like also learning how to teach online effectively. So yeah. There's that. Oh my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> it's been an eye-opening experience watching uh, a wide range of people that I know and love whom are educators at all different levels, including Julie, including my mother, who's uh, uh, the director of the vocal program at Wichita State, including my dear friend Sarah Cohen, who is a high school theater teacher in Kansas. I And I feel for all of you like, well, immediately like, oh, OK, the rest of the semester is on Zoom. And then like, uh, we'll be back. No. Well, just in case. Can you put your yeah. entire course load online? Like, how do you do that? You know, it's just it's they're not easy questions to answer. They're really not. Not even a little bit. But if the arts have taught me anything, it's the ability to pivot and <laughs> yeah. and remain flexible. Right. <laughs> um, to be really cliche. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> Everything's going to be what it's going to be. And I, sure. I've been kind of just waiting mm -hmm. until they make a totally final decision mm -hmm. about on campus versus not on campus. Sure. Before I commit, because sometimes I get married to an idea of my class being a particular way and I don't yeah. want to disappoint myself. So. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. 
We can find so much of your writing on the Art Intercepts website. Uh, all of these I'll link in the show notes. We've got Art Intercepts. We've got the Sea Chicago Dance. We've got the ebook, uh, Discover Your Dance Career. Um, and then also, I assume you're on social media. Mostly just Twitter. I love Twitter, and that's my main space. Um, I'm on Instagram as well, which is a little bit more snapshot of my personal self, but anybody is welcome to come <laughs> Great. there, Great. Well, I'll link your, <laughs> uh, your Twitter handle in the show notes as well. Uh, it's been an extraordinarily enlightening conversation. Uh, thank you so much yeah. for being here. Uh, I think you're such an interesting person in the dance community and I value your time and I'm so glad that you uh, spent it, uh, spent a couple hours talking with me. Thank you, Matt. I really appreciate it. This has been another episode of talk about the industry. I'm your host, Matt Miller. Thanks for listening. If you liked this podcast, please rate us and review us on Apple podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to share them with me directly at talkabouttheindustrypodcast at gmail.com. If you'd like to find out more about Lauren and her work, please visit www.artintercepts.org or cchicagodance.com. You can also find Lauren on Twitter at artintercepts is her handle. That's at A-R-T-I-N-T-E-R-C-E-P-T-S. And if you're so inclined, don't forget to pick up a copy of the ebook she co-authored entitled Discover Your Dance Career, also linked here in the show notes. Thanks for listening. We're glad you're here and we'll see you on the next episode of Talk About the Industry.